title, Proverbs, God's Ancient Wisdom for Our Modern World. My name is James Chapman. Glad to see you all have come back for a second episode. This morning we will be talking about the book of Proverbs, chapter 2. Let's get into it. Well, welcome back to my second podcast on Proverbs chapter 2. A a good summation of this chapter is um, that of a father or a teacher giving instruction to his son or his pupil on the efforts needed for attaining wisdom. Um, Also to uh, take a look at the moral benefits of attaining wisdom. And finally, the protection that wisdom will provide you from immoral people, both men and women, and also a very good conclusion. So, with no further ado, let's start off. I'll read from uh, verses 1 through 5, where we see this. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, And if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I find it interesting. When uh, we were in the men's meeting this last weekend, a question was asked about why many Christians don't get into the scriptures and derive a lot of benefit from it. And the first thought that popped into my mind was that Well, in many cases, and there can be a lot of reasons, but in many cases, people just aren't willing to put in the work. They're not willing to sit down and take the effort that's necessary in order to get what they need from the Scriptures. And as I look at these first five verses, I understand that, well, there is a significant amount of effort that God is saying is required in order for us to fulfill our part of this work that we perform with God. He wants to know us. He wants us to know Him. But He understands that as a human being, we are limited in what we can know, so it takes effort on our part in order to do what's necessary, in order to understand who He is, so that we can respect and honor Him, and what He is. So we'll know his nature, and we'll know what pleases him and what displeases him. So as I look at this first passage, um, I'm asked this question. Well, what are the requirements that are listed here for seeking wisdom? Well, the simple answer is hard work, a willingness to work, and accepting these truths as God's word. And then we need to learn and remember these truths, truths and verbalize our desire for these truths. It takes all of us, all of our efforts to do this. Now, how are the efforts listed here different? Well, some of them, as you'll see, are attitudes and some of them are actions. Turning your ear and applying your heart would be good examples of uh, a attitude that you need to have in order to do what's necessary to get there. They're choices. Choices that we make to make an effort and to follow a path that does not promise comfort and leisure but it does lead to a fulfilling life marked by a wholesome living and 
may help you avoid many miseries which are inevitable in a life marked by poor choices. Now, what are some of the unifying traits we need for all the efforts listed here? Well, willingness, hard work, and persistence. Yes, we have a responsibility in this joint effort with God in our pursuit of wisdom. We have to, quote unquote, get our hands dirty. We don't have to be intellectuals. We don't need a degree. But we do need to spend the time and effort to read and meditate on his word, to become so familiar with them that they become, well, second nature. And then God can begin to open our eyes to the depths of his nature and the ways of living which will lead to good, productive life. Now, what are some of the outcomes of all these efforts listed here, especially in verse 5? Well, the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. You see, the fear of the Lord emphasizes awe, and the knowledge of God stresses intimacy. See, all the truth and wisdom which exists comes ultimately from God. He is the source and the only one who makes us able to comprehend these truths. Our path to knowledge and then wisdom must start with a revelation from God, and we must study it diligently in order to obtain spiritual insight. And even that is a gift from God. This is how God's wisdom is so different from merely academic wisdom. It begins and ends with him. Moving on here, we look at verses 6 through 11. Let me read from that. It reads as follows. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he, everybody seeing these emphases there? For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Hmm. Well, how can wisdom found outside of the Lord be risky? Well, the simple answer is that it comes from unreliable sources. See, man's wisdom, especially when drawn from places which deny or are hostile to God and his wisdom, they're all dependent upon the opinions and experiences of the individual. This makes that kind of wisdom subject to the whims of human nature and the influences of our changing nature, society, and culture. And this makes man's wisdom changeable and unreliable because wisdom, like truth, is fixed and unchanging. Though you will find many wise sayings from various philosophers which are true and beneficial, well, they are so only because they align with what God has already revealed as true and right. 
Now, what do we see about things and well, actually, protections that are available as the result of following God's wisdom? Well, we see in verses seven, eight, and eleven a bunch of words that are used. It reads um, success, a shield, guard, protects. These are all listed as byproducts of following God's quote straight path of wisdom. We do not need to. Re we do need to remember that these are principles and as such are not guarantees of absolute protection. Now, this is in opposition to the prosperity or the, quote, name it and claim it teachings. We must understand that the realities of the sinful world that we live in has effects on the way that circumstances play out. And nothing in God's word takes away from his sovereignty. We do not somehow tie his hands by ripping a verse out of context and trying to use it as a club to beat God into submission to our will. But we can trust him to protect us as we strive to follow his will and obey him. You see, he is an unchanging and faithful protector of those he loves. Now, where does this, quote, protection mentioned come from? Well, ultimately, of course, its source is God himself. And this protection is derived from following these principles of being upright, blameless, just, and faithful. As mentioned before, we do have our part in this work to follow after God. And this way of living could seem to many unreasonable, impossible, or even foolishly naive to those who are resistant to God's purposes. But we have God's promise, not a principle, that he would be with us and never leave us. His Holy Spirit lives in us when we have asked him into our lives as our Savior, and it is from him that we get the ability to live according to his truth and will and resist the pull of our evil nature which has controlled our life. Well, we've seen the word, if we do this, if we do that. Well, what about this then that we see in verse 9? What's that refer to? Well, it, reversed, it refers back to verses 1 through 4, where we are directed to work on bringing God's word into our minds and hearts. Now, on top of the protections mentioned before, there is also a principle in verse 9 and 10 that shows the end result of learning God's truth and wisdom, and this has some enlightening benefits. It enables you to begin to truly understand right from wrong. The principles of God are the principles that help us really perceive what is right, what is just, and what is fair. Now, we love it when we are treated justly and fairly. Well, now we can really know how to treat others and live a life which is honoring to God and our fellow man. Let's keep going with verses 12 and 15 through 15. It reads, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and Rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. 
Well, how does wisdom protect us from wicked men? I can see at least two ways. First, wisdom gives us the understanding of the consequences and the actions of unwise and foolhardy choices. With this information, you are less inclined to commit the types of acts and make the types of choices which foolish men often make. This can save you from those consequences and so, quote, save you from their ways. And secondly, it gives you insight into these sinful men and who they are. By observing their words and deeds, you can discern their nature. And when you follow these principles of God's wisdom, you avoid them. And because of that, you are less likely to be caught up in their disastrous lifestyles. Now, what was the original state of these sinful men that are mentioned here? And I find this very enlightening. In verse 13, we see that these men used to be on the straight paths. Yes, we should take warning from this verse. Even those who once knew what was right, like us, hopefully, can make choices which lead them away from that right path, away from the truth away from God's wisdom. And when we start to reject wisdom, the call of the power of sin to enslave us is given greater sway and tends to tighten its grip on us. There is an old quote of dubious origin which gives us insight into the nature of our sin. It says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. This saying is an accurate reflection of the nature of sin's power. It enslaves us. It changes from a lifestyle that we choose to follow and becomes a master we must obey. It changes from a simple desire to follow a path that grants us immediate pleasure and it turns into a prison which drives us places we would not have chosen to go and to perform acts we would never have decided to commit and to pay a price we would never have been willing to give. So, what are the aspects of the men listed here? Well, first of all, their words are perverse. Simply, they have abandoned the truth. Being perverse indicates that these men choose to twist their conversations to be deliberately obstinate and unreasonable. Not that they can't believe, they refuse to believe. They won't even believe things that are unquestionably true. Due to their desire to subvert any truth that would call out their own evil de desires. Their words are one of the clearest signs of the conditions of their heart and should be a warning to us to avoid them and especially to disregard any advice they try to push on us. Another aspect of these people is they walk in dark ways. This word used for dark includes the concepts of obscurity, misery, destruction, ignorance, sorrow, and death. And these are all consistent with the results you can expect from living apart from the blessings of God. 
It should not surprise us that their, quote, ways bring about their own misery, sorrow, and eventually death and the lives of those around them. It is truly sad when a person reaches this next point. These people not only walk in dark ways and have a perverse uh, heart, they actually delight in doing wrong. That is terrible. When a person reaches that point where they actually enjoy the evil, hurtful things they are doing is wrong, this person has abandoned all pretense of living well and have turned themselves over to this evil lifestyle that they have adopted. Guilt no longer troubles them, and they really enjoy their destructive choices. These people need to be avoided because their life is soon going to collapse in suffering as well as the lives of those who associate with them. And finally, the worst condition I could possibly imagine is something that these people have actually adopted. Not only do they walk in dark ways and delight in doing wrong, they actually rejoice in the perverseness of evil. Wow, think about this. They seem to be in the deepest depth of depravity that you could possibly reach. They are not only enjoying their wicked life, they are thrilled with every form of evil there is. They're not just enjoying the terrible things they are doing, they revel in the fact that these things are wicked and perverse. They know what they are doing is harmful and destructive, and instead of turning from these things, they are overcome by joy by the evil they are committing. These people are in full, open rebellion against good and are openly defying God. These are truly dangerous people. Verses 16 through 19 starts to give us some more insight into the ways that wisdom can protect us. The first part was from the ways of wicked men. Now we're going to see what it can do for us when it comes to wicked women. It reads, Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death, and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the path of life. Now, what are some of the differences in the approaches of evil men and seductive women? Well, the key word that I see here to describe the difference is seduction. Now, in the context of this passage, the primary sin involved is that of a forbidden sexual relationship with the woman herself. She is using the desires of her flesh to entice a man to ignore what God has forbidden for immediate gratification. With men, it is different in that they themselves are usually not the focus of the sin. It is something else external to the body. However, with the LGBTQ plus becoming so prevalent, I'm sorry to say, even men have joined this wayward woman in her sin. I also see that in the case of this woman, that her motivation is 
purely selfish. She is using another to meet a very specific sinful desire that she once met outside of the boundaries that God has set. When a man tempts another to join in his sin, selfishness may be involved, but not usually to fulfill a sexual desire, though that is possible. It is more likely that he is trying to gain assistance and support for the sin or sins that he is committing outside of his body. Now, what's the difference between the first and second sins mentioned in verse 17, where it says, she's first left the partner of her youth, and second, ignored the covenant she made before God? Well, the first sin is directed, as uh, we've discussed before, horizontally, towards the flesh, things like that. It is not towards God, but it's towards her spouse. She has abandoned his relationship in favor of meeting her own needs her own way. It's outside of the restrictions of God's marriage relationship. She has chosen to harm this her spouse in order to control her own life choices. Now, the second one is directed towards God. It's directed vertically. She has basically elevated herself to be the final authority in her life. No person, God or piece of paper, can dictate how she runs her life. She is in open rebellion against God and those who would try to control her choices. So, why the severity of the warning in verse 19 where it talks about those who go to her will never return to the path of life? Well, I believe it's because the consequences of this particular sin is so severe. Sexual sin, especially in the marriage covenant, destroys many lives, many of these being innocent children in the family. It wrecks havoc in the physical emotional and financial aspects of both parents and places the children at great risk of long-term emotional suffering, bitterness, and often guilt. The children sometimes wrongly believe that they were the cause of the breakup. Now, we know that, the, that statistics show that the result of the breakdown of the family, there's increased drug and alcohol abuse, there's higher chances of incarceration. There's financial hardship for both parents and their children. And these damages can, can continue for generations. Now as we get ready to conclude here, let's take a look at what we read in verses 20 through 21. It starts off with thus. Thus what? Well, when we live a life of wisdom. So thus, you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the path of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. But what can we say about the conclusion to this chapter that we read here? Well, when you make the effort to follow God's way, even though you will never be perfect, your life will have the evidence of an obedience to God reflected in your thoughts, 
words, and actions. Following the principles of wisdom laid out in God's word and in his will, as a general rule, provide you with a long and fulfilling life, relatively free from the consequences of making poor choices. And failing to live by God's decrees will, as a general rule, cause your life to be marked by unnecessary pain, grief, and sorrow. You will, most likely, fail to achieve your best life, and what you do achieve will be short-lived and will be taken from you. Well, this completes this episode on Proverbs, God's Ancient Wisdom for Our Modern World. I'm your host, James Chapman. It was good having you with us. Hey, if you get an opportunity, go into Kindle Books and look for my books. I've got a uh, study guide for both Proverbs, Colossians, James, and Romans. You can find them underneath the book of, say, Proverbs, Discussion Questions for a Group Study. You can also search by my name, James Chapman. Look forward to seeing everybody next week when we go into Proverbs chapter 3. Hope to see everybody then. <laughs>